Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to another spine-tingling episode of Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by Relative Race on BYU-TV, Sunday nights at 9 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock Pacific. Hey, it's great to have you back, Genies. We have a very DNA-like slant to the show today. We have one of America's foremost experts who's going to be talking to us about DNA and some things you should be looking for as things continue to evolve in that realm. Diane Southard is going to be here on the show coming up a little later on. And we're going to talk to a guy from Legacy Tree Genealogist, too, about a recent project that resulted in a remarkable reunion for one of their clients. Brant Gibson is going to be talking about that. And then later on on the show, of course, another edition of Ask Us Anything with a military slant this week, some guy named David Allen Lambert. Yeah, he's a Bostonian who knows a little about that. In fact, I have him on the line right now. And you're not in Boston. Where are you? I am at the National Genealogical Society's Conference in St. Charles, Missouri. Wow. All right. You're traveling the world because I know you were in Alaska last week. When was the last time you were in Boston? For about two days last week. <laughs> and, of course, David is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society at AmericanAncestors.org. And I know some stuff was going on back at NEHGS while you were gone, David. Who did you celebrate this time around? Well, our annual meeting this year was to celebrate the news reporter Dan Rather, where he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award from the New England Historic Genealogical Society, as well as a prepared genealogy on his family. Very nice. All right, let's get started with our family histoire news today. And where do you want to begin, David? Well, let's start with confusion. How about if you work in your family genealogy and you get a lot of the same names? How about if you were William Williams the <laughs> Yes. The conundrum of do you name your son William Williams the 11th? No pressure there. This Welsh family has had family members living in America since the 19th century. In fact, they have William Williams the 4th family Bible from 1854. So hopefully they have nicknames to separate them, or maybe they just call them by the number, like the presidential <laughs> number of the right. Bushes. Yeah, right. 41, 43, exactly. Something like that. This could go on a while yet because uh, William Williams the 10th has a girlfriend. They are getting serious, and she says, I understand the responsibility that would be mine to produce William Williams the 11th because it's gone on now since the 18th century. Unbelievable. It really is. Well, another family story goes back to the 1930s, and of course, the exploits of Bonnie and Clyde will be well-remembered probably by our parents' and grandparents' generation. But one of the nephews and one of the nieces of Bonnie and Clyde are trying to reunite them. Well, actually, reunite them in the same cemetery. <laughs> yes. And this is not going well with the cemetery that has Bonnie because she is like the big attraction there. But they're going through the legal procedures and undoubtedly they will ultimately prevail. And there just happens to be a grave available right next to Clyde. You know, the funny thing about it is they wanted to originally bury them side by side. But Bonnie's mother said he could have her in life, but he's not going to have her in death. By the way, it's been a really tough haul for that family ever since the uh, the killings of Bonnie and Clyde in 1934. And it's a great article, and you can find it on ExtremeGenes.com. And on the same wonderful website, ExtremeGenes.com, you can find out about Muhammad Ali's ancestor, 
who in fact was a Civil War hero. Archer Alexander was an enslaved person from the St. Louis, St. Charles area, actually where I am right now. And he actually informed Union forces about a planned sabotage that was going to destroy a bridge, which could have led to the death of many soldiers that would have been crossing it at that time. Yep. Muhammad Ali was the greatest, but apparently so was his ancestor. Isn't that something? They got two great ones in their family. That's true. Well, you know, back in the early 1980s, I saw the movie Elephant Man, and I learned about the horribly sad life of Joseph Merrick, a man who had a rare genetic disease and was a freak show attraction. Then he was hospitalized in London. Well, ultimately, his skeleton was donated to science, but his remains, other than his skeleton, were buried but lost to time. That's until recently when Joe Vigor Mangovian, a British author, located where his other remains are buried. Now there's a push to see if they can reunite his skeleton with the rest of him. Wow. I know this is a late wish for Easter, but let's talk about Easter Island, which may have genealogical ties to it. The statues that have been there for so many millennia are actually ancestral statues, according to one researcher on whom we have a great story featured on ExtremeGenes.com. All right. Yeah, it is a great story, and you got to see this, and it was featured recently on 60 Minutes. Good stuff. All right, David. Thank you so much. Have a great time on your trip, and we will talk to you again actually later on in the show as we do another Ask Us Anything, talking about your military expertise. That's going to be a lot of fun as we cover Civil War and Revolutionary Ancestors. So excited to have my good friend Diane Southard back on the show. She's one of America's premier DNA experts, one of the great speakers you will ever hear anywhere, as she proved uh, once again at Roots Tech this year. And Diane's based in the Fort Lauderdale area in Florida. Diane, great to have you back on the show. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Always great to have you on. And let's talk about what's next, because we're always hearing so many rumors and thoughts about what could come from DNA in the not-too-distant future. We certainly saw this recent comment by uh, Ancestry. They did a blog talking about the changes in what's going on with the ethnicity results. And I've been seeing comments from a lot of people who are really thrown off by that. And I think there really needs to be a clearer understanding of about what this ethnicity result actually means. Well, when I see announcements like this and I hear all the questions, Scott, I just think job security. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There is no end to the updates. I don't think there will ever be an end to the updates, which means there's always going to be the need for someone like me to help everybody understand what they really mean. Yes. So, I mean, updates, by their very nature, sound like a positive thing, right? Don't we want the newest and latest and best? Mm -hmm. And I think in other areas like TVs at Costco, I mean, you walk in there and they're bigger and brighter and more clear every time. And you see people just standing and gawking. And cheaper and cheaper. And cheaper. Yes. So updates, we tend to think of them as very positive. And yet somehow in this arena, in the arena of ethnicity updates, I don't see that. I, I think a lot of people think of them as a negative thing. And here's why. I think when they see the update, they automatically have to think, well, wait, if this number is new, then that old number, was it wrong? And mm-hmm. that's the dilemma that people are having. Well, um, and there's an identity question, too, that comes along with that. People are either certainly. getting their, their identity validated or they're learning something new and they've shared these results with their friends and their family. And I did the test and this is what it tells me. 
and then all of a sudden you got to go back and tell them what <laughs> you know yeah untell them right? untell them how yeah. do you do that and you can see right. why yeah. it would be somewhat of a negative for a lot of people they spend a certain amount of money to accomplish that and often really ethnicity is all they went there for in the first place most of us as genies think hey we're going to go and we're going to find cousin matches and we're going to validate some of our research with the records with this but uh, in in their case Often, it's just for the ethnicity, and like you say, it becomes a negative when they make the changes. How do we turn that around? Yeah, and that's a really good question. I think the best answer is education. It's just helping people understand that when our companies are giving us our ethnicity information, it is just an estimate. It's a prediction. There is nothing ironclad about the numbers that they're giving us. So, well, then what good are they? How reliable are they? Yeah. Well, they're as good as the data they're based on. So one of the things I like to encourage people to do is every testing company, they give you your results, but there's also always a little link that says something like, show all populations. So then you can see all of the populations that are being tested by your company. So for example, for a very long time, none of our companies were giving any results on German ethnicity. It was always grouped into some other category. So, so many people would get the results and they know they're German. They have the documentation, they have the paper research, and yet their DNA was saying British and Irish or Eastern European or something. And they were confused. Where's my German? Right. Well, most companies just didn't have that category. So if you'd clicked on the all populations, you would have seen that there is no German category. It's not that you have 0% German. There's no German. And I think most of our companies have now updated so that there is a German category. And so your results that once had to be sucked into a different category now have their home, now have a place to go. So people who are seeing their German ancestors suddenly show up in their ethnicity results are thrilled, and they see it as an update, yeah. right? and a positive. So, <laughs> and a positive, exactly, exactly. So when you think of it that way and you think, oh, well, this is happening to me, even though maybe I don't have any German, the same principle applies, that if the population where my family comes from is underrepresented yes. in the database at the testing company, they aren't going to be able to tell me I'm from there. And because of the way their algorithms work, they have to put me somewhere. And so they've thrown me into the nearest category, which probably isn't correct. So as our updates are coming out, we're seeing this rearranging of our numbers. And for a lot of people, it is a positive because most of the time, our testing companies are becoming more refined in their categories and more refined in their ability to tell us where we're from. And it's a good thing. And they're but, getting it generally from increased base population samples, right? And better algorithms? Yes, those are definitely the two biggest factors, who they're comparing you against and the math. So the math is very complicated. You think it should be really simple, right? You test a bunch of Irish people and you identify Irish DNA. Then we look at you, Scott, and we say, Scott, do you have this Irish DNA? If you do, you're Irish. If you don't, you're not. 
But that is not how it works. No. And, and of course, we've talked about this many times. You've got a lot of people going back and forth across various borders and various categories. You know, what what are the Eastern French, right? What are the Southern French? Because they may be closer to Portugal. The Eastern French are right there against the Germans. So you're going to get all kinds of material from there. And you might not identify with the one you're getting. Yeah, that's so true. So later in June, in mid-June, I'll be speaking at the German Genealogical Society. It's a national, actually it's an international conference in Sacramento. And I'll be giving a talk for the first time called It's Getting Easier to Be Genetically German. <laughs> and um, we're, we're talking about this. I've seen some preliminary data from uh, the testing company Living DNA, and they are working really hard to do exactly what you just said to say, well, people from Germany don't all look the same genetically because Southern German, everybody looks different. So let's define those categories specifically. And so it's been really fascinating to see some of their initial results and how you can tell the difference between different places in Germany based on genetics if you have the right reference populations and the right math. Wow. And it's been really cool to see that. So so what else? What's next in DNA do you see coming around the corner? All right. Well, so we just talked about the one kind of result, your ethnicity result. The other kind of result, as you mentioned, is your match list, that list of DNA cousins. So we're seeing updates in both areas. And one of the biggest updates we're seeing in our match list is automation. So at Roots Tech, both Ancestry DNA and MyHeritage DNA released a fancy way of viewing your matches. So Ancestry calls it through lines, and MyHeritage calls it the theory of family relativity. Yes. So both of these companies have very large connected family trees. And what they're trying to do is merge this record-based research with your DNA research in ways that are valuable to you. So it's a collection tool. It's based on mostly on your trees, actually, and just a little bit on your DNA, which can cause some problems. Uh, For example, in Ancestry's tool, what they do is they gather anybody they can see who's a descendant of a particular ancestor. Like my great-grandfather, he actually had five kids, and most of those lines represented the database. I think I have like 13 people who are his descendants in Mm -hmm. the database. So through lines gathers all of those people together for me and shows me their relationships, and it's really handy. Yes, and And I've had great success with it myself, and I've really appreciated it. And and it's beta, though. It's still getting developed, and it changes every few weeks the way they present it. But nonetheless, you can see that this is going to be a really useful tool. Right. But it it's also really dangerous. It is. Really dangerous because <laughs> it is based on tree data. And we know that not everybody is as diligent of a researcher as we would like them to be. Yep. And so if a lot of people insert the same wrong ancestor into their tree, the tool doesn't know that. The tool just sees the same person. And it validates that wrong person as being the right person, unfortunately. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not good. So there, there are definitely ways that we as genealogists need to go in and validate the through lines tool and say, okay, I see that you're saying that, Scott, you're my match and you're supposed to be my fourth cousin. How much DNA are you sharing with me? There are ways that you can go through and look at the total amount of DNA you're sharing and your relationship and determine if it all makes sense or not. So there's definitely some education that needs to go in here. I love how they're stepping out. They're saying there's ways that we can automate finding our ancestral connections. 
and they're making strides in that direction using their considerable resources, both in the way of family tree data and in the way of genetic data, to try to present us with something that's a little more useful than just a list of matches. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Diane. You've made my mind explode, and I'm always thrilled to have you on the show. Talk to you again soon. All right, Scott, thanks. You know, on this show, we talk to experts like Diane Southard, who was just on talking about where DNA is going. And then there's that practical application of DNA in solving cases, and in many cases, identities, especially of people who are adopted. And this goes on every day, but it's interesting to follow the process that takes place. If you're listening and you've considered perhaps that you want to pursue your birth family if you're an adoptee, and we have Brent Gibson on the phone right now, and he is a caseworker with Legacy Tree Genealogists. And, uh, Brant, it is great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. You know, it is always a fascinating thing to help somebody who has struggled finding their birth family because it's a life-changing thing to do for someone, isn't it? And it's not something that just anybody can do. You have to have a certain level of expertise. So let's talk about this recent case you recently had. And I know that uh, the Mm -hmm. person you were working with has given you permission to talk about it. So let's explain exactly what the situation was. Yeah, sure. The client that came to us last year, she had been adopted as an infant. And when she came to us, she had already identified her birth mother, but she needed some assistance in figuring out who her birth father was. Obviously, she had a positive experience with the birth mother, I am assuming. Yeah, she had a great experience and was interested and excited to try and identify her birth father's side of the family as well, to try and expand her family circle. And so why was she struggling with it? Obviously, she did pretty well in tracking down the birth mom. Did she use more conventional ways? Or was it when she got into DNA, she found herself a little over her head? I think so, yeah, because she had tested at a number of different places. And she saw, you know, Santa Morgans and possible relationships and everything. And there's just so much data to sift through. So many possible relationships to all of these people that she didn't know. She didn't know how to pull all of it together to tell her what she was really looking at. Sure. Okay. And had her birth mother given her any clues as to the birth father's identity? She did. She gave her two names of her likely birth father. The client had actually gone out, identified descendants of both of these individuals, and they had agreed to DNA testing, and the results came back as no match for both of them. Oh. So she was really stymied on who her dad could be because her mom was offering no more information. Well, yeah, those are those challenging times. People don't want to look back. So what happened now? You had several different pools she was fishing in as far as the DNA goes, and where did you get Mm -hmm. something to work with? Right. She tested at MyHeritage, Ancestry, a couple other places, and her best matches were actually at Ancestry. That's not really a surprise because they are by far the largest of all the testing databases out there. Right. But her closest match was at Ancestry, and he shared enough DNA to possibly be maybe a half-first cousin or a first cousin once removed, somewhere right around there. So really close relative. Wow. And he didn't match any of the mom's side. So right off the bat, we're thinking, okay, this guy's going to be the linchpin in, in solving this thing. Sure. Well, but with only one, it's a little challenging unless this person knows that his relative had a child sometime many decades ago, right? 
Well, it, it helped, too, that he had a really well-documented family tree going back to at least his great-grandparents on all of his lines, and most of them went much further than that. Nice. Okay, so you had the potential to get some candidates, especially if you could find another match. Exactly. So we started looking through the shared matches. The shared matches feature on all of the DNA testing websites is by far the best tool that you have yep. in identifying connections between not just you and your match, but your matches to each other. Yes. And so that's what we started looking at first, saying, okay, so you've got this really close match. Who else matches this client and this cousin? Right. And we started looking for surnames in common between the match and the shared matches. And were you fortunate enough to find a bunch of those shared matches? We did, actually. There was one line that was only back to his great-grandparents, and he only had their names, no dates or places or anything. And when I saw that couple, I just felt this little tug that said, you know, give a look at these people. And when you get that, that little nudge in that direction, you got to follow that, right? Sure. Absolutely. I started exploring that, and the connections I was finding were all related to this couple. It really helped that they were both immigrants from Poland, and they had unusual names for Midwest America in the 1930s when they lived. So it made identifying the connections to these shared matches a lot easier. I mean, to some extent, this is almost like the criminal cases, right, where you're just trying to figure out, all right, where do these people all come together, especially when you consider mm -hmm. the relationship? It's kind of like a little puzzle as you put those puzzle pieces down on the table. Exactly. And so finding these connections, even though they were a bit more distant, probably like, you know, third, fourth, fifth cousins or maybe beyond, they all share that unusual surname. So it's kind of like when you're building a puzzle, you start with the edge pieces first, yep. especially the corners. So you can get like a framework so you can have an idea of where this thing is going to go. And so that really helped in this case, having that unusual surname, finding these connections that all pointed back to this one immigrant couple from Poland in the 1800s. And so how did you narrow it down to one particular descendant of that couple? Well, that came in with some other shared matches with a close match where we found connections through his great-grandmother's side. As we looked, we started finding relatives that also matched to his great-grandfather's side, who fortunately also had an unusual surname. Ah. This guy had the rare name Jackpot, as far as this kind of research is yeah. concerned. <laughs> Absolutely. So you found the father, you presented her with the information, and mm -hmm. now the fun begins, and that is the breathtaking act of actually contacting somebody and say, hey, I think you're my father. Tell us about mm -hmm. that. Right. Once we had the couple narrowed down, the time frame said it had to be one of the sons of this couple. They only had two sons. Fortunately, both of them were still living. So we, we got contact information for them, gave that to the client and said, we believe your birth father is one of these two brothers. And so we gave her the contact information. She reached out to them and one of them came back and said, yes, I believe I'm your birth father. And he agreed to do a DNA test at Ancestry immediately, which was amazing. Wow. And six to seven weeks later, the results came back, and he was the father. Wow. And did he reach out to her with the news, or did she reach back to him? Who saw the results first? I believe she did. I think he gave her access to the results. Okay. So that she could see them when they came in. And so once the results came in, she called him up and said, yes, you're my father. And uh, from what I understand, the reunion was just amazing. The family was very accepting. She has, I think, 
you know, three or four half-siblings, one of which lives really close to her. And where is she located? Uh, in Illinois, I believe. Okay. And so she's now met her birth mother and had a good experience there and had a great experience mm-hmm. with the birth father. I love hearing that. Oh, I know. Me too. I, you get so worried about how accepting is the family going to be, what's the reaction going to be. But apparently they were all just open arms and, you know, we love to have you in our family kind of thing. So it's just really fantastic, really gratifying to hear that. Well, and there always is the chance it's not going to work out that way and, and often does for people. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the majority of them do work out well, and I'm always happy to hear about that. And now she's kind of become an expert herself on how this is done and can probably help others. There are a lot of search angels out there dealing with adoptees, aren't there? Oh, definitely. The search angels do an amazing work and all for free and help people like this client try and identify their birth family. Absolutely. Brant Gibson from Legacy Tree Genealogists, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for the story, and it's great to hear a positive outcome. Thank you. Thanks for letting me share that. It was a pleasure talking to you. Then it's time once again for our Ask Us Anything segment. And this week with David Allen Lambert, now wearing his military expert hat. And David, it's great to have you back. And our question comes in from uh, Robert. He's a KTAR listener in Phoenix, Arizona. And he says, how do I get the Civil War records of my ancestors? Well, the real question to Robert is, are they Union veterans? or are they Confederate? Now, the Union records are pretty much easy to find. In fact, the National Parks website actually has combined with Confederate sort of the minimal information. Basically, you could find your William Fisher with the 12th Connecticut Infantry or the 5th New York Heavy Artillery or the 3rd Alabama Infantry. However, the records are another thing. Now, they're starting to be digitized. In fact, on Fold 3, They are really the federal record repository digitization arm, I would say, of Ancestry and also for NARA. NARA is basically not able to digitize everything under their own auspices. They basically will allow you to go to the archives and you could digitize and put on their website your individual ancestor, but they're not going to do everybody's. That's where Fold 3 is coming in. So, for instance, all the service records from Massachusetts, to my satisfaction, have been digitized and are already online on full three. Other states, not so much, like New Hampshire and other little places that your ancestors may come from, take a peek at full three. And now it's very easy to get your Civil War ancestor service file because you can get it for $27.50 from the National Archives. You can order them right from the narrow website. It's really quite easy. Confederate records are on microfilm, and those are available from the National Archives as well. The Confederate pensions are a little different. Now, obviously, with the Union Army, you're going to get a pension for disability, or your widow might get one, obviously, if you're killed in the line of action or you died and you would have collected after the fact. That was from the federal government, right? That's right, and the federal government really didn't give pensions to the Confederacy. So the states that had Confederate forces would then, in turn, give them state-awarded pensions. So, like, Virginia Confederate pensions are all online for free. You can get those online. Those are great. There are other states like Texas and Arkansas and other states that you can find that they either have a finding guide to them or an index, or some of them also have them online. So more and more in the digital age, Robert, you won't have to worry about in the coming decade or so looking for the original records because they'll all be online. The other thing that I always say when you're looking for pension files 
you're going to find affidavits fishing. What the affidavits are is like if you and I served together in the war, right? You were a witness of my ancestor getting injured. You'd write a letter on my behalf to help me get my pension. Yeah, we have one of those for uh, one of my wife's ancestors who was killed in the Civil War. Well, here's an angle. Why don't you look up the pension of that person to see if your ancestor wrote a letter on their behalf, getting a different angle on a battle that he or ancestor may have not even been injured at, but was present. And I tell people to adopt the company and then ultimately the regiment to get a full story of what their ancestor's life was like during the war. Wow, that would be a great way to go. And what about for the South? Did they do that same kind of letter for them? Mm, They sure did. Uh, You would get affidavits to support your claim or affidavits from a local minister or a family member that was there when you married your wife because now she's a widow and needs to prove that she is, in fact, your widow. Maybe there was a courthouse got burnt down by the Union forces and there's no marriage record left. But her cousin was present in 1857 and could swear and did so in front of a justice of the peace that she was there when the widow married the former Civil War veteran. Wow. All right, David. We'll talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.